0: Hi, my name is Skipper Chong Warson, and I'm a design director in San Francisco. And welcome to How This Works. This is a show where I invite people on to talk about a topic that they know incredibly well. And today, I have Carl Welty with me. He's going to talk to us about being an architect and his work in sustainable design. Thanks for taking time to be here, Carl.
1: <laughs> uh, you're very welcome, and thank you for um, inviting me to, to this wonderful conversation.
0: So. Carl, tell us some things about you. Who are you?
1: it's <laughs> well, pretty clear that I think that um, we are obligated to to leave the world better than what we what it was when we found it. Okay. And we are now at a crossroads in human history that that's an enormous challenge, and we have much to much work to do on that. Uh, other, a few other things is I, I, I like. When asked that question, it's fun to tell people I was born in Roswell, New Mexico. <laughs> and in a further conversation about my way I approach architecture, some people think that um, that the fact I was born in Roswell, New Mexico, has a, an influence on how I think about architecture.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and specifically, if people don't know much about Roswell, one of the things that it's really well known for is uh, this notion of... Aliens and um, isn't Area Fifty Two? Is that what it is? Area Fifty Two?
1: Area Fifty One. Fifty One. This because I was also I was an Air Force brat, which is why I was born in Roswell, New Mexico. Ah. but Area Fifty One is in in Nevada. Okay, um, Roswell is famous because of the in nineteen forty nine. There's a supposed crash of an alien ship,
2: oh. and the Air
1: Force did an a- autopsy. Okay, on a on an alien. Okay, so that's set quite different than Area Fifty One.
0: Okay. I see. Shows how much I know about Roswell, New Mexico. Um, so that was in 1949 is when it
1: allegedly happened? Yes.
0: Okay. Born in Roswell, you were an Air Force brat. Where else in the world did you end up?
1: I wasn't so traumatized by moving too many times because I was younger, the youngest in my family. Okay. But so, um, Roswell lived in Turkey and this is in the late 60s, which is, uh, a great experience um, and in California, but, uh, but Turkey climbing around old castles and seeing old ruins has um, shaped the way I think about architecture and sustainability mm. is particularly this lesson of civilizations and cities come and go. And um, this is always in the back of my mind with the question of preparing for climate change or how we, you know, building cities that are more resilient and, and more efficient. Okay. So this the history of past cultures is looms large in my thinking and how I approach design.
0: I see. So, Carl, what's something about you that people may not guess? Something you feel comfortable sharing?
1: <laughs> oh, I thought I thought Boeing born in Roswell was.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely uh, an interesting fact, for sure.
1: Here's a, the the first thing that comes to mind, which is that's uh, something that again, an emotional thing that I I deal with in, in that I'm a sensitive or a thoughtful artist <laughs> because I'm kind of a big guy. Okay, I often sometimes just I, I I say that people think of me as a contractor and not a designer, not an architect oh, because I okay. I look more like a contractor than a architect.
0: Okay, well, and I and I also think there's an important lesson in that we're not always who we might present as. So I I appreciate that. Thanks. So Carl, what are we talking about today? I mean, I gave some of it away in our introduction, but I'd love to hear you say it. What are the things that we're going to talk about that you know a lot
1: about? Um, We're going to talk about sustainable design, which um, is in the minds of many people and you know, sustainable are there's a term that I prefer regenerative design Mm. Uh, and we can say more about that, but um, how do we build affordable, energy efficient, resilient homes and communities? Um, So we're going to talk about that. And also nearer to my heart and soul is the uh, art and not art as, artifacts, our design, hmm. but I believe art, um, at the high, at, when it operates at the highest level says something about how we have in the past, see the world. Okay. But I think also we're going to, I would like to talk about how art has shaped how we, how we understand or see nature Okay, or see the world outside of us. Sure. Specifically, I would talk about my take on Renaissance art and what we call modern art or European 20th century art, cubism and Picasso and modern art.
0: Awesome. All of that is, they're they're very meaty subjects. So I say we, we we jump right in. Okay. So what in your mind is sustainable design? Like how would you define it? And then you also mentioned another term, this idea of regenerative design. How is for you the idea of regenerative design a more appropriate term for how you think about this topic?
1: So regenerative design, it, it can feel like a new buzzword, okay. but I think in the history of sustainable thinking in the last 30 or 40 years, it, it, it really predates sustainable design. okay. And regenerative design is building community, building buildings, a home in a way that um, works more like nature or generates energy. Mm. Uh, a great example that people like to use and uh, is um, like a tree, for example, a tree creates two hundred times more energy than it requires. Oh wow! So the the, the leaves that it <clears throat> that grows that helps absorb you know absorbs the energy sure. as they fall off, or as the tree as they fall off in, in that sort of cycle, mm-hmm. those leaves become compost or energy that goes back into the to the earth okay. and other systems other you know other plants and animals who use that energy another another i think important distinction is sustainable design is using less okay so we're, you know it's conserve and but regenerative uh, re- regenerative is about creating you know a systems that create more like the okay. tree so it's and so in closing i'd say that uh, we're past the point where using just using less isn't enough that we we have to build communities that create energy or create resources like all other um, species or other systems okay. so the regenerative i think is a better better goal
0: hmm I, I think that those are really important distinctions between sustainable design and regenerative design and that idea that a tree creates 200 200 times more energy than it needs I don't know that I ever thought about it that way. That's a fascinating way to position that. So what are things that, you know, and like you pointed out, the notion of being sustainable is about conserving and using less and being more responsible with existing resources. What do we need to be thinking about for the future? Like what are some of the issues that you see at hand?
1: Well, since I'm an architect, we'll talk about, the future of building buildings and building communities sure and um, starting from i think from this inspiration of creating buildings communities that are operating in a way that's generating energy and not just consuming energy okay we're starting to make buildings with solar panels which is an example of generating energy on site or through the building okay You're generating energy in a clearly a more efficient way than burning Fossil fuels and carbon-based energy systems. Sure, we we can all agree that solar panels is more um, sustainable than burning fossil fuels. Sure, you know it's certainly less impact on the global climate in, yeah. in, in the um, increasing the carbon dioxide in our environment. Yeah, a better course mm-hmm. for regenerative design or building buildings and communities. Is uh, working with nature more holistically. Okay. It's shockingly, I, th- I think, simpler mm-hmm. in how we do that. The quickest way to explain that, or the the science of that, was well established and researched in the seventies. Okay, and, and so we <clears throat> what we call passive solar design. Okay, and, and that's sort of the, the first thing to go to simply put i mean at the first level passive solar design is about orienting buildings to the south okay and when you do that then you can you start absorbing energy directly from the sun i think a simpler more cost effective way of heating and cooling our buildings okay and lighting our buildings than using solar panels or other machines okay and, and then' we'll, I, we'll talk more about that but I, th- I think that my with my my, my approach to sustainable or regenerative design this the using nature or passive solar it stands in contrast or it's a little outside of the way the typical approach to sus- energy efficiency yeah. is thought of yeah at the core of it is working with nature. Again, more organically and more a homegrown sort of way, yeah. and it really, literally, is building buildings that heat and cool themselves using the the, um, the parts of a building that we will, we would include anyways.
0: Sure. So, if if this notion of passive solar design has been around since the '70s, I would imagine that architects and home builders and people who uh, do commercial construction. They've all been doing it, taking advantage of these things uh, to build houses and office buildings and and other kinds of spaces, right?
1: You would think that, but they haven't.
0: Oh, (laughs) that's disappointing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I'm old enough to have gone to school in the 70s and early 80s. Okay. And And did you go to school
0: um, to study architecture? I did. Okay.
1: Uh, I went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Okay, a lovely place to go to college. Yes, and you know this is pro, you know the late seventies, seventies, late seventies was really the I, the peak of thinking of this. Okay, and and I had a class called Passive Solar Design in nineteen seventy nine. Okay, taught by a gentleman who's still alive, who's a real national leader in passive solar design.
0: And what is his name?
1: His name is Ken Haggard. Okay, H A G G A R D. Great. I, 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 and for another project that we're, we're working on, I've had the opportunity to reach out to him, and because I thought he has so much to learn to teach us still, and he does.
0: Yeah, that's great.
1: So the, 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 that history of Passive the solar in the seventies, it was inspired or necessitated by the the oil embargo mm. from um, the seventy three and seventy nine, and at the time we started to think that we would. Reach peak oil sometime okay. in the early 21st century. Okay, and much like today, where the state of California has encourages us to be innovative with solar panels and other energy systems, yeah, the state of California was paying people like Ken Haggard to write books and do research on building homes and structures, okay, um, that were more energy efficient. Okay, so it's 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 a really great history that perhaps. <laughs> Yeah, be its, own, its own show. But <laughs> Ken Haggart built a home in 1972 okay. that was heated and cooled 100 percent by natural systems. Oh wow! And the cost of, in general, about passive solar are these systems? They really don't add construction costs to the buildings. Okay, and they remain. You know, they're they're more efficient than kind of the most ex, the, the best approach, most expensive approach we have today. I like to kind of summarize in this way that a, a well-designed passive solar building doesn't add cost to the construction, mm. and you can approach fifty percent, fifty percent more efficient than a normal building. Hmm. You can increase the cost, the construction cost a little bit, and get that up to you know beyond fifty percent. Generally speaking, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's you know the typical green building that we think about today. Um, we, 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 sort of peek out at, they peak out about 30% better than normal. Oh, really? And can increase the construction cost 50% or more. Okay. To me, it's, it's, it's an extraordinary opportunity to, to, to become more aware of how we, you know, we can build, we can make buildings two and three times more efficient than what are, what we think of as the best buildings. Yeah. But without increasing construction cost. Sure. And it's, it's just, it's, it's not pursued very much.
0: Okay. Well, in a previous conversation, Carl, you and I talked about how, and you shared this fact with me, so I'm just repeating back something that you had had talked about. But by last year, by 2020, the state of California was requiring that all new construction of homes needed to be net zero energy. And one of the things you pointed out to me is that homes consume about one third of the energy used in the state. So it seems like there's a a really strong incentive to do things like passive solar design, and especially if it doesn't add much more in terms of construction costs, why aren't builders or architects or um, other folks in the construction industry? Why aren't they taking advantage of these
1: things? Let me go back to the history of, of passive solar. Okay. So, as I said, the the, the the peak of this, the the research or the interest in this was the seventies and early eighties. Okay, and. To your question of why aren't we doing that more, okay. I believe we lost f- interest in that. We, the, con- the, the development industry or the, the design industry lost interest in this because Ronald Reagan in the early 80s mm-hmm. and oil became very cheap in the 80s. Oh.
2: And
1: so there wasn't the incentive as in the 70s you know, from the threat of um, oil embargoes and loss of energy. Sure. And so, cheap oil from the '80s and '90s, we, uh, with that, we lost focus on this other way of building. Okay. Uh, it, it, but another part of it is, is culturally, with the architects and just I think just as our culture, mm-hmm. that we look to machines to solve our problems. Mm. Um, and and I think that through passive solar or these other natural systems, it's uh, it's a different way of thinking. You know, know, we have to stop and pause and, you know, ask the question, can we do better kind of looking at nature and seeing how nature works and being inspired by that?
0: Yeah. What are some of the strategies that you would point out, things that builders, architects, homeowners can do to take advantage of something like that?
1: Great question. I've come to this, this is thinking that you know when I talk about working with nature, mm-hmm. there's um, I think if there's four things in nature that we we have to be aware of, and, okay. and there it's all very simple and very obvious. I, um, but in, the first one is the sun is higher in the summer than it is in the winter. Okay, and I think we kind of aware of that, but not really. That that can be part of you know be more forward in our in our minds. Sure. Number two is the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. And the the sun is in each day, the highest point of the day, the sun is more or less due south. Okay. And the third part, the third sort of aspect of nature, and this is particularly true in California or other dry desert climates or climate zones that are not hot and humid, the nighttime temperature is always 25 to 30 degrees cooler than in the daytime. I see. And we can use that to help cool our buildings. So this passive solar or natural systems, it's not just about heating, but it's also about cooling the buildings naturally. Okay. Uh, and the fourth part is that um, we can, in, in any location, you, you can rely on a prevailing winds or breezes that are pretty consistent. Yeah. So, so the first step in past solar is just sort of saying this is the this is what nature provides us. Yeah. And if you work within these these rules or this how what nature has, it provides us, you can do extraordinary things you make buildings and communities affordable and much more efficient and more resilient. Okay. And, the, and we also talked a bit maybe the getting ahead of ourselves but the you know the the next you know how we use those facts of nature Mm -hmm. is to think about the building not as this box that has energy flowing into it from the energy grid or a building that's just a box that has machines on the top, solar panels or machines inside to provide thermal comfort or energy. Mm -hmm. So I start to think about the have this question of, can we think about the building envelope as an energy system? I see, and I think that's a, a, a good way to think about it. And what that what I mean is the parts of the buildings. You know, so to me, this to me, this is the flip side of these facts of how nature works. Okay, but the parts of the building that we have to think, you know, we can think about as systems, energy systems are the things that are in buildings: windows, roof mm. overhangs, mm. walls, to, you know, well insulated walls, and the concrete. Usually, you know, typically a concrete slab or or something. It's in the building that acts as an energy storage system, okay. And um, that's what we call thermal mass. Um, I mean, it's the, the easiest things to think about are concrete, or or water, or you know something that will absorb heat. Like in the winter time, you want the sun to come into the window, yeah, and heat that thermal mass up. And then at night, when it's cool when it's cooler, that heat radiates out to heat the space yeah and the flip side of that in the summer you use the roof overhangs to keep the sun out to start with so you you don't the building doesn't get as hot Mm -hmm. and that thermal mass that energy storage system is cooled by the cool night air by ventilation i see so during the day that chilled thermal mass absorbs the heat that comes into the building yeah keeping the building cooler. yeah. Uh, so maybe that's something people know about maybe is um, old Adobe structures work that way, okay? except that they, they don't have insulation. So you also oh, need sure. to, you want to, ha- the, the, the building shall be insulated as well. Yeah. So, so to me, this idea of a building is an energy system and a storage system and, and why it's so f- cost effective is it's just using the stuff that we, that buildings are composed of windows yeah. and roof overhangs. Yeah. And it's just about using the locating them differently, thinking about them differently. And when that's done, then you get a building that's 50% or more efficient than a normal building without increasing the construction costs. You're just using the things you're already there.
0: Yeah. I think those things are important to consider as you're making a house, right? But what about some place that you already live? Maybe let's say you're renting or um you've moved into an existing house. How are ways that you can take advantage of that passive solar effect to a better purpose?
1: Another great question. When I talk about these questions, in which I do a lot, people often say, well, what about existing buildings? Sure. And the first thing is, <laughs> there's always something that can be done. And of course, easier to do in a building that you own and not renting. Sure. But for me, the first example is... Because also, you know, existing buildings t- don't typically have the correct orientation, and mm. many buildings we, we know many existing buildings don't have that optimal orientation. But what can be done easily is the is the ventilation uh, okay. using nighttime ventilation for cooling a building. Yeah, and, and this is why it's important to think about passive solar is not just about the sun and heating, but also cooling. I see. And much of California. The energy required to keep the building cool is more, or is the same as keeping it warm, or sometimes requires more energy. And and as with climate change and you know global warming, cooling will become more and more important. Yeah. And so, so an existing home or or building with some, I think, pretty simple retrofitting, you can start ventilating. You know, designing the building to be vented at night to take that cooler night air to cool off thermal mass. Yeah. Um, So things can be done.
0: Okay. I like the previous example that you gave of an Adobe structure um, and how there were certain advantages, but one of the disadvantages of Adobe is that it's not well insulated. And I think that's something that if you are in a home environment where you can't make many changes, maybe that's something that you could do is put up curtains or blinds as a way of insulating against the sun. And then those are things that you can open up at night to facilitate that ventilation.
1: Yeah, that's really it. And, and, um, I would also add that insulating is the kind of way we think of as the first step to making older homes more efficient. Mm. If an existing home or structure has, you know, too much sun coming in from the west, which is yeah. pretty common, yeah. and another simple natural system is planting trees for shading. Okay, and you can. You plant deciduous trees that um, will let the sun in in the winter because they lose their leaves mm. and shade the structure from the, the summer sun. Okay. Uh, to, to me, that and that's also another I think beautiful example of what nature provides us. Yeah. Maybe I should also just add this in addition to the building as an energy system, but think about the landscape as part of the building energy system,
2: oh, okay. which I think
1: is another kind of leap or something to think about. So it's not just we have a building and then the landscape is this thing you do on the outside that's just for decoration.
0: I see. You've mentioned a couple times in our conversation, the idea of climate change and how our natural world is changing from what it was a few decades ago. And I know my wife and I just moved from New York City. And one of the things that we've encountered, and we live in the Bay Area, Um, is this notion of having a fire season and not only the dangers of because it's so dry fires breaking out either that are caused naturally there were some fires here that happened last summer that were as a result of lightning strikes or deliberately and so one of the things that you and I talked about in a previous conversation is this idea of how we think about our homes um, can also influence those things this threat of fire existing in the world. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, this is a, re- a really important part of building sustainable or resilient communities. Mm-hmm. In California or much of the West is this threat of wildfires.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's um, California, the West has always been, uh, you know, fires have always been a problem. Yeah. Even long before white man came. Yeah. But with climate change, you know, we, we you know the, the season of wildfires is now almost the entire year, right? You know, we, we all know that that this is such an increased risk of fire. Yeah. And so this so the for me the um, building more fire resistant homes uh, is super critical because there's you know thousands and thousands of people who want to rebuild. Yeah. And we'd like to rebuild in areas that will continue to be a fire risk. This is the uh, the second part of the second half of my thinking about sustainable design, which you know the construction, and so yeah. and, and this is under the category of resilient. Okay, building a resilient or more durable, and and so the, so this so this the two halves are for me is energy the energy component and sure. we talked about using nature to solve that problem so the other half is resilient okay Um, and um so so resilient is is resilient durable so for me the i think again affordable solution for more fire resistant more resilient homes and communities is not building with wood okay um at at the first level is because wood is because wood is combustible Right. And there's there's ways we we build, and there's codes that re, that um, require us to build homes that are more fire resistant. Okay, but in the end, it's more combustible, sure. you know, to other other materials.
0: Didn't we and learn this lesson in the Three Little Pigs <laughs> with the second little pig? <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> so for me, I think my first choice solution for homes is building with light gauge steel. Okay. For me the the questioning of not building with wood started in 20 years ago. Okay. Um, with working on two home projects. One is uh, you know I, I wanted to have a beautiful I wanted to have an arc, a post exposed to be stained and you know to to express the beauty of wood. Okay. And I specified what, you know with the highest quality of wood one can get. Sure. And then, so this post, a 4x4 post came was delivered to the site and it looked really great, but within a week or so on the site and, and, and contractors are, they, you know, they bring lumber and flooring and, and, you know, mat- these All the
2: materials. Products. Sure.
1: They bring them to the site and they, uh, to acclimate to the moisture or to the, the site. Sure. And so within a week, that beautiful post twisted and split. Oh, it, wow. It was not going to work the way I wanted it to work. I see. The other lesson at the same time was a client had just finished a, a second, a large two-story addition to their house and their exterminator, advised them to tent the house immediately after finishing.
0: What is the tent
1: tent tenting, um, to, for, to exterminate, to, Oh, I to, see for, to kill termites. I see. And I was surprised by that because I, you know, my, my when they told me that I said, well, but it's all new lumber. Right. And the, the, their exterminator told them that the new lumber is bringing termites into the house. Oh, wow. And since so learning that in, in subsequent research and it's a, a whole other universe Sure is, that that the termites is a, it, it's a big issue and it's a, and again it's another issue that's going to become a larger issue because of climate change and there's new species of more aggressive termites and that's sure. a whole other story. <laughs> but we all know we all know that termites are a problem. Okay. Right? And, yeah. and so, but the backing up a bit with the, this issue of wood, in addition to you know trying to find an alternative that's not as combustible. Okay. What I've learned is you know the, the wood we have today is not like the wood we had a hundred years ago. Mm. Particularly I mean California, we we all know beautiful old craftsman homes that are beautiful and they look great like they did a hundred years ago. Yeah. But but all that lumber was um old growth lumber. I see. So it's you know very old trees that we don't have anymore. Yeah. And if we, even if we could log it we shouldn't. Yeah, for all the reasons we understand, right? And and so, most of the framing construction um f- up through the seventies was old growth lumber. Okay, and so the, in the eighties, with you know the, that lumber was no longer available, the quality of lumber cont- has continued to degrade since then. I see. And so now we have lumber that's um it's grown very fast. Okay, for. Economic reasons, and that's because the lumber has grown fast, cut down earlier, you know, younger. Mm. It's not as stable. I see. So, in addition to being more flammable, it's just it's not as stable as the lumber from long ago. Yeah. So, if we're looking for affordable systems, alternative systems like cold-formed steel or light gauge steel. Yeah. For me, it has to be affordable. You know, so it's not. You know, we need systems that people can afford.
0: Yeah. I mean that doesn't doesn't feel like a very winning proposition to have lumber that is more flammable, less stable, uh, and as termite species are changing tends to attract more termites as well. That sounds like a bad proposition.
1: I believe so. The the termite species that we're most concerned about is called Formosian termites and it's they're Formosian, more Formosian, okay. The center of these termites in America is Florida and New Orleans. Okay. They swarm in larger colonies, okay, like really big colonies, and they're as I said, they're more aggressive. And you know, there's stories that one can find from in, in New Orleans where you know a, a two story wood wall is completely demolished in within a couple of years. Wow! So it's pretty, it's really different. Yeah, you know, as animal species do they migrate. Um, and as this climate gets climate gets warmer and warmer up through the north and to the to, to the west, yeah, they continue to migrate. And so there are colonies in California. So anyway, that's to me is a an issue that's looming out there. Yeah. We we need to, to think about. Yeah. So so that's just recapping this 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 idea of you know the, the, the energy issue and then also resilient resiliency are durable. So this building with steel is a way to build non combustible and increased fire resistance, but it's also you know it's a, a structural system that's good for hundreds of years. Yeah. And even without termites or fire, I think a wood home built from the lumber that's available today, it's certainly not going to last a hundred years, you know, even you know even if it's covered up in stucco walls. Sure. So building with cold form steel and other systems, you know, we can dependably build something that will last. Hundreds of years, I see, without requiring chemicals for killing termites and more fire resistant, less mo- no mold. So sure. an- anyway, that's um, so that's the these sort kind of two two parts of sustainable design, yeah. resilient and energy efficient.
0: Okay. Well, I love that you brought up this notion of a building that lasts for hundreds of years. So, I want to get into one of the other topics that that you had previewed, which is around you have an interest in art, and that has influenced the way that you think about this notion of sustainable design or regenerative design. Can you talk a little bit about where that started for you? How did how did that begin?
1: Kind of sheepishly, or almost in, because I maybe because of my background or my technical training, I always have felt embarrassed about these very esoteric (laughs) ideas. But um, I mean, in some ways, this this questioning of our interest in history comes from, again, living in Turkey and and having the experience of history being real, you know, climb on old castles or ruined cities. And so the result when in college, I stumbled upon a, a history class that at schools like at Cal Poly, where it's a very technically oriented education, okay. um, stumbling into a, a class on medieval history was outside the norm. was unusual, but as a young architecture student, and th- I think of it as that this the lesson I learned in this class from a teacher who was very inspiring mm-hmm. was: if I were to read more, I would learn more. Sure, and coming from a, a you know a kid from a and a family that education wasn't so such a high priority, that was a lesson that I had to learn. I see. (laughs) Anyway, so, so from that class, I just started to read more from the library that, you know, beyond what we were required in our architectural history classes. Okay. And and it it is also one one of the prefaces in, in architecture school, we were taught and we are still taught that drawing perspective it's real, yeah. That's how we see the world, yeah. And and when I say perspective, it's specifically linear perspective or this perspective that was that's highlighted in High Renaissance art. Okay. So the so starting from this idea that we're taught to believe that drawing perspective is real, it's mm-hmm. accurate, it's a true representation of the of the nature. Okay. Um, it's also, to say that. In architecture school, as architects, we're taught to believe that. That's in it, we're taught how to draw those. Mm-hmm. But it's a cultural norm as well. So even outside of architects or people who are taught to draw the, that way, mm. our culture reminds us that perspective is real. Our photographs, our our cameras work that way. Our mm. Cameras prove you know every time we take a picture, they prove that. Oh yes, that those rules work. Okay, that's how we see nature. Yeah, my some reading I was doing. Outside of my history classes, I learned that perspective was invented in fourteen thirteen. Oh wow! <laughs> Which is, we some people say that because very important architect Brunelleschi, mm-hmm. um, who's most known for building the dome in Florence, but he in fourteen thirteen he did made a painting of the baptistry in Florence. Okay, and he codified the rules that we use now use for making precise perspective drawings. Okay. And so, so that was in 1413, and it immediately galvanized artists. Or artists started to to see that that was the right way to do it. Okay, and it, and it really ushered in the High Renaissance. And so, very, so quickly it, it, it started influencing how artists were making paintings, how architects were making cities or sure. buildings, and an impact urban design. And subsequently, it, it, it influenced Western science. Hmm. I mean, there's lots of really wonderful books that I, I stumbled upon when I was on this quest as I finished college. And this sort of the, the leap into Western science, I think, particularly came from artists started to develop these things that they called perspective machines. Okay. Um, first one that we kind of know about, the most famous, was by Durer, the Dutch painter okay and I think if anybody's had an art history class you've seen these images of particularly there's some really famous etchings of drawer you know the artist looking through a a picture frame with a grid and looking out to nature or looking to a subject and they transfer that subject or, or view of nature onto a piece of paper with the same grid oh interesting and so so the so these perspective machines were not just used by artists but they were used by the the hobbyist scientists from the 1500s into the 1700s, you know, the aristocrat artists and, and scientists would have these, these machines were part of like having a microscope, they'd have a perspective machine. So this, so I, within, I think within the history of the perspective machines is how, you know, started us to think about that we can represent nature and know nature with 100% certainty with, with objectivity. Yeah. Since I'm a hobbyist historian, I like to say that that, that moment of that 1413 was this moment of separation in Western culture from nature. Hmm. And so this is so the so the flip side of this with in, in Western culture is, you know, Cubism and, and mm-hmm. you know, it really started with the Impressionist. One of the things they're trying to do is find a way to represent nature that was not so predetermined as perspective. Okay. And so, you know, I like guess Monet's painting of the sun changing on the haystacks. and
2: Sure.
1: But so, and, so the, and then they evolved into Picasso and Cubism and where they really started to deconstruct or change the, the structure, pictorial structures. So you have multi-view and different moments of time. Sure. Completely influenced by Chinese landscape painting. Mm. <laughs> and so, so this other, this thinking about art from other cultures I like this idea that except for the success of Western imperialism or Western colonialism, yeah. European colonialism, yeah. that all other cultures represented nature in a way that was more like Cubism, more like Chinese landscape painting. Okay. For me, Chinese landscape painting offers a, 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 an insight on how to think about representing nature in a way that's more organic.
2: Okay.
1: And that mode of thinking uh, has influenced how i think about architecture in some ways a, a specific building you kind of shaped how i designed this, a particular building yeah that engages the local landscape in geography i think more naturally
0: yeah speaking of landscape and geography you have a project that you're currently working on in orange county that speaks directly to this idea of sustainable design or regenerative design Um, And how we can do better? Would you talk a little bit about that project?
1: Yes, (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. Uh,
1: it's. um, We I feel enormously privileged to be part of the project. The project is specifically it's it's a Banning Ranch site. Okay, and our client's was is a local nonprofit that spent twenty years stopping private development on the the largest privately owned. Undeveloped site on the coast of Orange County. Oh, okay. Um, the, the efforts to stop the development culminated in, a, in 2017 with a Supreme Court California State Supreme Court ruling that really upheld the California Coastal Act and, and other laws in California that are then place to protect the environment. Okay. The effort to stop the private development of you know private homes, you know 1,500 homes, a large hotel, mm. kind of the stuff that we we all we know all too well they were able to stop it not because not just because it was the right thing to do but because the state coastal act was there is you know it it establishes rules and how you develop protected or um, sensitive habitat okay so the site is a um, is a, a 400 acre site again it's on the coast on the coast and it's been an oil field since 1943 Oh wow! Um, kind of ironically, because it's been an oil field since 1943 and fenced off with very little human contact, native California coastal grass and other um, coastal sage scrub, you know, the natural habitat has been saved.
0: Oh, wow. What was it before it was an oil field?
1: Before it was an oil field, it was a cattle ranch. Okay. The, the project is exciting in addition to that it's a very large site and there's an mm-hmm. ambitious... Goal to restore it to pre-development standards, and, and uh, the part that's really exciting for me is uh, building a education research campus with multiple buildings. Okay, but the site is the an important part of this project is to tell the, the history of the site. And the history of the site is the history of Native Americans.
0: Oh, okay. And so, so, even before it was a cattle ranch,
1: before it was a cattle ranch. I see. So the goal, or the what the project should be about mm-hmm. I think is embodied in my these principles about working with nature. And even before this project, I, I thought that, um, like I said, other cultures, particularly Native American cultures, that we think we all can agree upon or all accept that they knew how to work with nature and live with nature mm. so much more in, in, a, in a healthy, non-destructive way than what we <laughs> <laughs> Europeans have done. Yeah. Yeah. So at the first look at the project it's there's two parts of it is restoring the natural habitat hmm. and it's not just the plants but it's also the animals in in endangered animals that use that natural habitat for to live yeah. owl and you know this that's uh, and and restoring some wetlands because it's also very close to the Santa Ana River. Okay. So it's this re- restoring of this but and it's but it's telling the story of the native americans who lived on that site and they're the, the Hashiman. It's the it's kind of the primary tribe of Orange County. Okay. So, so the history of the Hashiman and the history of the site are, are just completely linked together. So yeah. the Hashiman lived on the site for 12,000 years. It's what yeah. we are more. <laughs> I see. There was an, a Hashiman village, large village on that site. Okay, For, for, for 12,000 years. Okay. And when the Spanish came in 1770s, they relocated them to build the Mission San Juan Capistrano. I see. Um, and the Spanish turned it into a cattle ranch, mm. which immediately started to degrade the natural grasses and the natural habitat sure because cows are an invasive species and, <laughs> and so it was a cattle ranch from 1770s until 1943 when because of the war yeah. the need of oil um, okay and so so the so the history of the site is the history of european colonialism of extractive extractive economy yeah using nature in a way that will be around for 12,000 years yeah and obviously, the the fact that the people these Hashimans were relocated, it's also the story of env- environmental injustice. <laughs> yeah. So our approach to designing the project and the project is we've designed a you know, vision design, mm. so, uh, and it's you know it's years away from political struggles still to be overcome before it's, sure. before the next steps. But the goal of the development of, is in the research and the education is to tell the story of the Hashiman, not just to tell their story, but to, to learn their lessons. I see. And, and, and represent those lessons in the buildings as a way to build modern communities that um, embody those ideas of living for thousands of years in harmony with nature. Yeah. See, we also talked about, so the other, another advantage to these homes that are heating, and cool themselves, regardless of the energy source. If we also know that with fires and our, our uncertain future, that our, our energy grid may not be so reliable. Yeah, and we're already people are already losing their power. The power is being turned off because of fires. Yeah. So if a house can cool itself without that energy, yeah. it's less of a problem. Yeah, and I invite people to think that you know that's just not to save our houses from a fire, but that's part of a symptom of the new norm. Yeah. That's the, the impact with climate change. Yeah. And so that as we, by just looking at nature in a way that, and as a native Americans think of, you know, we're as a part, we are a part of nature, not different from nature. Yeah. We can find solutions to these problems that are, are starting to come at us <laughs> with greater speed and, and more frequent yeah. and, and, and nature has a, it's a pretty extraordinary how many, you know, what we can do um, by working with nature and looking at history um, and, you know, how city, how civilizations built cities yeah. long before our modern energy grid.
0: Yeah. It's not just art history in y- You and I have talked about this before, but even the notion of architectural history, right? We can take lessons from the cooling towers of ancient Persia or courtyard homes in Pompeii or, you know, Native American cliff dwellings, or even something that we see a lot around California, you know, that idea of like Hacienda roofs, right? It's the way that we build physical structures to adapt to our natural environment.
1: A a lesson learned, I've learned from working like this is that, you know, these decisions that you make, the design decisions you make to make a house more efficient mm-hmm. and warmer, and, you know, it connects the structure to the local landscape.
2: Mm.
1: Um, particularly, a project that I'm very proud of is um, near where I live in Pomona, okay. a, a water education center. Okay. And in the process of designing it, you know, so I the, the question of how do you design the entryway to a water education center and, and mm. then ca- caused me to inspired me to go up into the local canyon that's visible from the site and the canyon was part of the the regional water cycle you know and the geography okay and i and, and, and i think just you know this this to pause and ask so how you know how do you do this how to do, how does that you know how does this natural water system work mm. and I you realize well a canyon the canyon's part of it so so the that so sort of, that would inspire me to to design the entrance to the building like a canyon, mimics a canyon. So it begins, and the rest of, and other design decisions about how this building within this local regional landscape. Yeah, And so so these decisions about both energy efficiency, but also kind of the cosmology or the philosophical sense about, or maybe spiritual sense about the building and the landscape mm. you know, nature. When one pauses and thinks about that, I mean, it just so many beautiful solutions come at you. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's, it doesn't, I don't think it makes it harder. I think it makes it easier.
0: So, Carl, we've talked about a lot of things during our conversation, um, but I want to make sure that there's something that we didn't miss that um, you really want to talk about. Is there something that we haven't gone through that you really want to give some time to?
1: Maybe just kind of recapping the you know, the um this Orange County project, the uh, um banning ranch. Okay, it's been an extraordinary opportunity to work with the local tribal leaders and spiritual leaders of the tribe. Okay. To learn in a deeper way what it means to be part of nature mm. and and how to embody those lessons to build a more sustainable, resilient future. Yeah. And it circles back around to, you know, the very beginning of even a simple drawing. We make drawings that are based on the, like rules of perspective, or you know, so even yeah. the way the way we start to make a drawing has a cultural bias, or you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a it's a, something we learn. Mm-hmm. And so, from some projects or this trying to think about making buildings more efficient, you know, these lessons about how we are part of nature. Yeah, uh, I have been really important to me and, and been very much made to feel deeper by working with Native Americans, learning more and more about that and, um, and connecting those ideas to um, environmental justice. And, um, and there's a, a U.N. policy that's called um, free and prior consent. OK, it's something I want to learn, you know, influence my, my work more and more Okay, and Particularly, a woman that we've working with, she said that you know through the through the rules of this free and prior consent from the UN, and, and which means asking Native Americans, how should we really build and mm. free and prior informed consent or FPIC? Okay. and and it's because you know this you know the these people who the Hashiman that in Orange County who you know their families have lived on the land for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Yeah that just there's the respect in in wanting to work with nature on the land. Yeah. It's stronger because you know their ancestors have been there for forever. Yeah. And they and they think about their, their way of thinking about nature is also changes how they think about their ancestors. So I think it's really true. It's a really important idea that talk to indigenous people and ask them how to work with the land. Yeah. So that's something we're, we're excited about working with, you know, ex- expanding with them.
0: Um. Mm. Well, Carl, I'm really glad that you're working on the Orange County project, and I hope that it continues to grow and develop in the way that you've described it. So I, I thank you for your work. No,
1: thanks. Thank you.
0: So we're coming to the end of our time together, unfortunately, because I feel like we could definitely delve more and deeper into all of the topics that we've just talked about but I'd like to get into some of the closing questions that we ask all of the guests. And the first question is for you, what's one of the most important lessons that you've learned so far in your life or in your work for that matter?
1: The importance of history. Yeah. And, and the more recently, the um, important lessons from native Americans, how that we are a part of nature mm. and and, and the, you know, as an architect and building, trying to design sustainable um, this this question of part of nature, not separate from it, sure. is is kind of how is the starting point to um, to find solutions that are that work that are durable, resilient, and affordable.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm hoping that a lot of other people take a cue from the spirit of the things that you're saying, even if they don't listen to this podcast, but they're able to grok and inhabit some of the things that we've talked about, because I do think that we need to change. We can't continue living in the way that we have. We can't continue building. We can't continue making. We're a part of nature as well. How do we integrate instead of trying to be
1: separate? Yeah. How do we integrate, not dominate? And that's right. It's, um,
0: so what's something, Carl, that you're excited about right now? Like something you're reading or maybe you're watching or listening to?
1: There's a couple of more recent books that I, that, you know, one is um, a book written in the, I think in the early 80s, the Machines as the Measuring of Man. Okay. And it's, it's a really interesting um, social history of European colonial um, explorers with perspe- um, survey instruments measuring land. Oh. And there's some, there's some, another book that I can perhaps email it to you. Sure. <laughs> that, that really is a history of Europeans, the machines, like the um, mechanical clock mm. in the time, you know, medieval ages. And I think perspective is, the, this invention of perspective is part of that, that. There's this part of, you know, the European culture from medieval time into the Renaissance, where there's a interest in developing, machines and concepts that brought order to mm-hmm. the world mm-hmm. and created Western science. And there's a tremendous benefit to that. Yeah. But I think it's important to to understand the limitations of these systems and how they have influenced the way we think. Yeah, you know, pre twentieth century science, European science, that was about measuring precisely, you know, with precision. And I think the base, one of the bases of twentieth century physics, is that in sciences we really can't know nature without disrupting it.
0: Oh, interesting. Okay,
1: and and I, I think that's part of that lesson of of understanding nature more holistically, and more you know, integrating it and in, in not not. Using it from the outside, not to yeah. dominate it.
0: Yeah. Well, well, we'll link to those books in the show notes so that way people can find them easier. So just send them to me later and um, we'll, we'll make sure that it gets in there. Where can people find out more about you, Carl? Do you have a website?
1: It's com, but we'll, we'll share that information.
0: Yeah. Well, Carl, thanks so much for taking time and making the space for our conversation. I, as... As before, I, I learned a bunch.
1: And I appreciate your I appreciate your, um, your interest. Thank you so much.
0: And thank you for listening to How This Works. This episode was edited and mastered by Troy Lococo. Please subscribe and leave us a review in your favorite podcast app. I have a favor to ask. Would you tell just one other person about the show and why they should listen to it? That would be great. You can find How This Works online at howthisworks.show. It's three words, no dashes. Again, that's HowThisWorks.show. We're also active in the places where social media does its thing. I hope that you learned something from my episode with Carl today. I for sure did. We'll talk again soon.
1: to find out where i read this and this is probably 10 years ago but it was a beautiful description of chinese landscape painting traditional landscape painting
2: okay
1: and it said that um that a landscape chinese landscape painting which we're all too often taught isn't as sophisticated as renaissance art and all of that stuff um it's just a different mode of representation oh okay and it comes from a different sure way of thinking about nature but it is but it, but this and it's this is such a great summary but it said that um this art historian said that you know lands a chinese landscape painting requires you to imagine yourself in the landscape yeah you know it's not it's not that european view of looking to the window and objectifying it it's you know it's that you you have to project yourself into the landscape mm. which is actually you know so although I, I think most of the Important early 20th century European artists that have inspired me. They say things like that and they say things like that because they were, they were looking to Chinese art to answer some of those same questions.
2: I see.